Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's nice. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999, speeding through the zoo here in 2021. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today back is Norm Wilner from Now Magazine in Toronto and the podcast Someone Else's Movie or Somebody Else's Movie. Someone Else's Someone. Movie. Had it. Someone Else's Movie. Um, Norm, thank you so much for coming back for uh, discussing the well, I guess really the filmography of one of our most prolific directors, uh, Clint Eastwood, and one of his uh, least impressive movies, it's, True yeah. Crime. It's a point it's, of it's fascination a, for me. It's a lesser Eastwood. Um, and unlike some directors, I'm just going to start a conversation here. Unlike some directors who are very prolific, like Woody Allen, for instance, even his lesser movies uh, tend, to, tend to have some cultural – footprint um cursed jade scorpion for instance i think people at least know it exists hollywood ending i think people know it exists and have some kind of understanding that you know it was it was there for a moment i swear to god before i did this podcast i did not know that there was a clint eastwood movie called true crime true crime (laughs) um and i think that's a a thing that's kind of unique to clint which I, i i would I want want to present this in two ways. One is Clint Eastwood is very clearly to me one of our finest filmmakers, um, uh, one of the top five American filmmakers of the last 30 years, in my opinion. Uh, 
Two, uh, nobody holds that opinion, even though I think it's objectively true. Um, he, maybe because of his politics, maybe because he kind of was a pretty boy actor, um, particularly uh, in Westerns. I think, and just even though the fact that he won two Oscars for two, you know, kind of unimpeachably brilliant movies, uh, I do think that there is this thing that, that leaves him out of the, the Scorsese, Spielberg, um, even Fincher kind of even Spike Lee conversation of the great American filmmakers. So what do you guys think about that? Norm? I, mean, I, I think it would be a better argument if he had stopped working like at around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 2006, 2007. Um, the problem with Eastwood is that he works when he doesn't have anything to say. Um, he makes a movie a year because he likes to work. And I, you know, like same with Woody Allen, really. And, and these are both cases of people whose overall body of work actually diminishes their accomplishments the longer it stretches on. Just because like Eastwood, I, like, I am fascinated by Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker because he absolutely has an aesthetic. He has an interest in things. He has great screen presence that he knows how to use better than almost any other filmmaker he's ever worked with, which is really saying something because actors are almost always blind to their own abilities mm -hmm. when they become filmmakers. Um, he understands his own iconography, um, but he doesn't care that much. Like he just, uh, I have, I have, I've like, I've met him. Uh, I've interviewed him in a press conference setting once and it was incredibly frustrating. Um, <laughs> uh, I've talked to people who've worked with him because he's like, he's a smart man who yeah. doesn't want to deviate from what he wants to do. Like, he just wants to tell the story in front of him. He wants to relate the anecdote in front of him. He wants to go with the plan, whatever the plan is, not deviate. And you can tell when he directs actors, you can tell, in his shot compositions, like he doesn't, um, Peter Morgan, who wrote Hereafter, which was the junket that I did and where I met Eastwood. A um, movie that doesn't exist. Barely. Yeah, it's, barely it's, exists. Again, like true crime, it, yeah. you, you can maybe remember a couple of shots. Mm -hmm. uh, this, the I thing that the I... Poster? Yeah, I remember Hereafter the poster. Yeah, for true crime. Yeah. Uh, here, I, I'm telling Hereafter you, I, I like not know true crime, true crime existed. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw true crime. At, I was at the I was at the press screening. I saw it at a preview screening at the 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 Plaza Cinema in Toronto of nice, memory nice. underneath a, underneath a shopping mall yep. downtown. Yep. Um, and the only thing I remember, 21 years later, watching it again, the only scene I remembered is the scene with Dennis Leary, James Woods, and Clint Eastwood in a, in a room yelling at each other because it's the only time the film is just weird and unpredictable and the energy's right. 100%. Uh, Stop fucking Bob's wife. He doesn't like it is a great line. <laughs> delivered, says everything and actually has yeah. nothing to do with the story the movie is telling. Like it's, that's the contradiction. And maybe that was it. Maybe it's just like, you know what? I want to make a movie based on this book. And, and the novel had been knocking around for a while. Andrew Clavan's book, which is apparently like a Carl Hyacin style journalism. Is it based detective on comedy? a true story? Am no. I crazy? No, it's, okay, it's not. Okay. I mean, there, okay. there are lots of crusading journalists trying to overturn death row execution kind of stuff. Like, but they changed stuff from the book, obviously in its adaptation, which we'll talk about a little bit. Cause there were some, some stuff, there yeah. were some significant changes that I think are somewhat interesting that Ebert even points out in his review. Yeah. And the Zeus scene is there, which again, it's like one of those things where when you see that, it's just like, why is this in this movie? Where like if, tonally, this makes no sense. But then apparently the book is sort of a comic look at this sort of story. Um, 
The, but the, the, Zeus, the Zeus scene is one of my favorite scenes. It's, it's so crazy. And that's his own it's daughter, crazy. which, you know, it adds to the, to the sense of the insurance waivers that must have been necessary. <laughs> I I mean, I, I was watching this film and I was off, I was thinking about, because Kenny and I have, have talked sort of loosely about Clint over the mm-hmm. years, just in turn, just on apropos of whatever just on text and what have you and i think we both have you not right like he's a massive yeah he's he's a huge filmmaker he's left a huge uh a footprint um and and like you said he always has a movie so on some level you're always kind of he's always sort of in the consciousness but i think that kenny and i have similar feelings about him in the sense of him being incredibly important and yet at the same time i completely agree with you norm that you sense that he doesn't necessarily care about the movie that much like he cares enough in the sense that he hopes it's i guess that he hopes it's good right but like we are talking about a filmmaker who you know there's a there's a classic clint story um from in the line of fire which admittedly he wasn't directing so this might have something to do with it but they were shooting a wide shot of renee russo and him uh walking around the washington monument or something and they shoot a take and wolfgang peterson who was the director turns to clint and says gives him some notes and Clint was like, was I in focus? He's like, yes. <laughs> Could you hear me? Yes. Then we're moving on. And I feel like that really just is Clint Eastwood. And I don't necessarily, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like the guy knows what he's doing. He gets it done. He moves on. But to your point, there'll be like a shot in Jersey boys, which I saw in the theater. Lord knows why. It's terrible. And there's a shot where, where one of the kids and not a kid, like a teenager looks right down the barrel of the lens. And you got to be like, Clint, get another take, dude. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's, a, there's a moment in hereafter where one of the actors, one of the child actors flubs a line and keeps going uh, there. I'm pretty sure there's one in true crime too. There's a stammer that Probably. Isaiah Washington has towards the end, but it plays like he's nervous. So yeah. they kept it. Yeah. But um, well, this is one of the, like Peter Morgan on the, uh, I got to talk to him separately on the hereafter junket, just one-on-one. And he told me that he wrote this thing, like this, this is a script about the question of what happens after death. And it's about people grappling with it at various stages of their life. Like, uh, two, there are twin brothers. One of them gets killed in a car accident. The other one is convinced he can still feel him. Um, Matt Damon is a medium who meets, uh, is it Cecile de France, a young woman who uh, who's who survived the tsunami in um, the Boxing Day tsunami in in the South Pacific, okay. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Indonesia, I guess. And uh, she doesn't understand why she lived, and she sort of takes comfort in him. And all these stories. And Morgan told me that he knew a friend who died. He had a friend who died in the seven seven bombings, which are in the film in in London. And he wrote the script as a way of grappling with his lack of closure and his inability to understand everything. And he gave it to Steven Spielberg because he was working with him on something. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg said, oh, it's not for me, but I think Clint might like it. And so it goes to Mel Paso. Eastwood decides he wants to do it and tells Morgan, we're shooting this next month. You know, like, who do you have in mind? I think Matt Damon for this role. And Morgan was yeah, flabbergasted. Like, go, he go, said, go. Like, yeah. do we, like, that was a first, it wasn't even a first draft. That was ideas. Let's rewrite it. And I want this and I want to try to this. And Eastwood's response was, and this is a quote, I don't do blue pages. He doesn't rewrite. He doesn't care. And maybe that is, I don't know that that's arrogance. Maybe that's confidence of a filmmaker who's been working for so long that he knows what he likes about a script and wants to do it. But also he doesn't do second takes. He shoots rehearsals and you can always tell. Like you can always tell when he's working with that. I want to defend his style. Hmm. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, 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 sometimes we're talking about because um, 
all right, this is a luxury. This is a privilege that that only people like Clint Eastwood have had. You're only people sure. with two Oscars and who you know started the, their career with Play Misty for me and Josie Wales and Pal Ryder and proved at a pretty young age. I mean, he was in his 40s, but it's at, at early in his career that he knows what he's doing. On low budgets, he knows what he's doing on mid-sized budgets. Um, he makes money. He's Clint Eastwood. It's a luxury. Um, but it's what I personally strive to do as a writer. To write something, it costs me nothing. So I I can do this in a way that doesn't really you know, exude privilege, but you know, still I do have the privilege to work whenever I want. So um, to some extent. So all I'm saying is I like the throw the, the make the bad pancakes and throw them out theory, which is I like the Woody Allen, Clint Eastwood. I'm going to make a film every year. I work to live. I live to work. Uh, if nothing comes across my desk that blows me away, like uh, like Letters from Iwo Jima or whatever the last film you think was amazing, I'm still going to get out there and I'm still going to put something down on celluloid. And it may not be great, but I'm going to go – the next day I'm going to come back and do a great one. So when I look at Clint's filmography, um, I'm down to throw out the ones that don't count and just keep the like 15 to 20 you know, excellent movies he made and just ignore the other ones. And I think that's the price of doing business with Clint and the price of being a Clint fan. You know, again, they're not all going to be Fincher where they're all basically – if not perfect to us, perfect to him, you know, to some extent. But I just, you know, there, there are a couple of theories I have, particularly when it comes to writing TV, which you need to be fast about. One is, uh, you know, I, I know people make fun of George Bush for the quote, like, uh, you may not always agree with the decisions I've made, but you can't deny that I made the, the, made the decisions. <laughs> I, think there's, I think that there's uh, wisdom in that, which is the worst decision you can make is no decision. And I like the idea that you make the decision and you move forward. I, when I'm in a writer's room, I always say, for the most part, all these decisions are equal. All these decisions that characters can make are equal. What matters is how we do them. So to argue about he wouldn't do this and he wouldn't do that and she wouldn't go here and she well, – they could. Let's, let's see what happens. So I like that about Clint that he makes decisions and moves on, makes decisions, move on, moves on. And sometimes it's something that I think is like brilliant and wonderful and lovely like Sully. And sometimes it's something like true crime where a lot of decisions don't work. And sometimes you wind, wind up with situations where Clint just missed the guy looking down the barrel of the camera, uh, <laughs> which is unfortunate. But that's the price to do business as well. Right. So, but isn't that the problem though? Like if you only use your first take, aren't you deciding not to make a decision? Like aren't you not doing anything to change the output? My right. understanding is he, he, is, he does frustrating one or two takes, but yes. But uh, I, also, I, do think that, I do think Clint is an extreme example of this theory, hmm. and I do think some of it is like, I don't know when this is all going to end for me. Uh, <laughs> there's certainly less care with a movie like uh, you know, Gran Torino or The Mule than there was with a movie like Unforgiving, where every shot is perfectly composed well that's it right like that's what i mean about getting farther away from the masterpieces from the good stuff i like i and i would argue i think the last film that he made that was truly great was probably letters from you certainly the last time he challenged himself i i mean i like sully i like gran torino i like good uh you know what richard jewell's not bad but it's not bad because the last 10 years of clint eastwood's movies have all been this sort of monochrome single piano key uh minimalism 
I also I, I, I want to also kind of defend him a little bit from a slightly different angle, too, because watching this film and, and, and knowing his very, let's just say, cavalier way of making films, sure. I think that sometimes that creates magic. Right. Like sometimes there's something really magical about the throwawayness of the way he does things. Um, I mean, I think I think we can all safely say that most lines should be thrown away. Right. Like, and I don't mean in the garbage. I just mean in the sense of like said in a way that doesn't feel important, said yeah. in a way that feels like sometimes speak. Yeah. Right. deliberate naturally. Sure. Absolutely. Deliberate, natural. Right. Genuine. What have you. And I think he's very good at that. And sometimes the material works incredibly well for that style of making a film. I mean, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that's sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. 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 And I think that, and, and I, and I do think that to your point, Kenny, and to your point as well, Norm, he does push himself. And when, when the planets align and he knows, I think, when he recognizes I've got something truly great in my hands, like I've got a script here that I know. I can absolutely kill. I mean, if it is Unforgiven or if it is Million Dollar Baby or whatever it is, I, I, I think he knows that. And then other times I think it's a job and he's just like, I just want to work. But watching this film, I just, I was sort of hit with, there are kind of moments of magic. There are some scenes that are, I think, quite powerful and quite well done in this film when his style works incredibly well. And then there's other times where the film just feels downright lazy. You yeah. know, where you're just like, he's just, he just doesn't care. And he's just like, I, I just, you know, I, let's just get the shot. I want to talk for a second here just about, because Kenny mentioned a little bit about his earlier career. I want to mention sort of the swath of films that he's doing sort of post Unforgiven in the late 90s, early 2000s, where he's doing, he does A Perfect World, which I know Kenny really loves, which I, love. I have seen only once many years ago so i need to rewatch that yeah i love bridges of madison county i think it's a i actually think it's a I bunch mean, of masterpiece the perfect world is definitely my favorite clint movie but it's it really it, it, like it's it, it's within me you know the ways these 90 these 89 movies are so i'm i'm not even sure it's <laughs> one of his better movies but i do I, oh, i'm crazy no, about that film i think it is i think those three films unforgiven a perfect world and the bridges of madison county are sort of this crucible of well, this is the other. This is the thing I asked him about at the at the press conference for Hereafter. I'm going to keep going back to this story because it's my only Clint Eastwood story. Sure, please. Uh, but but I believe, and I will argue this. I can really argue this for hours. That his thing, whether he knows it or not, the movies that he casted himself in after Unfor- from Unforgiven onward are all movies yeah. about aging and remaining relevant. They're all movies about mm. still doing the right thing or the good thing for society, even when you are no longer considered viable. And part of that is simply because Clint Eastwood is getting older and just refusing to stop playing these roles, right? Like true mm-hmm. crime is a perfect example of this because everyone is constantly telling him he's washed up and useless. Um, and the, the meditation for me of true crime is even assholes can save the day. Like this guy has no redeeming qualities except that he's right except that he refuses to let go. Um, he only got this story because he was trying to sleep with the woman who was working on it. He's two months sober or three months sober. He's just crawled out of the bottle. He only finally wins because he gets drunk and and decides again, like he, he goes full bastard and that's what lets mm-hmm. him finish the, the job. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this fascinating argument that takes place over 15 years. And I think it goes as far as maybe blood work, maybe even as far as Gran Torino, where... He's yeah. arguing that he's still vital. Like he's trouble still with the curb as well. Up. 
Trouble yeah. with Kirby, yeah, that one's that's what I mean. It's I know it's direct, direct, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely, Norm. Every movie he's done, including Unforgiven, so that's oh. almost thirty years ago. Yeah, is about is about staying relevant. I would even say you look back, the, the Dirty Harrys are about that. Right. Yeah. yeah. But that's, uh, that's not a question of age. Right. Like that's a question of point of view. And, and yeah, it, but it's all I mean, it's obviously all of it is Clint Eastwood being right. He's rarely ever played a villain in his own movies or even someone like true crime is, I think, as close as he gets to playing someone of questionable character. I mean, William Money's a killer, but for yeah. good reason in the movie. Um, but doesn't but this all come back sort of this? And, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to no, say, no, go and I just asked him this point blank and roughly as nervous and halting away. So I just did it here and he just didn't want to answer it. He's just like, he actually made a joke of it and just kind of went, what? And pretended he couldn't hear me. And bless him, Matt Damon called him out and said, no, you answer that question. That's a good question. And so I owe Matt Damon a fruit basket. But <laughs> what, what did he answer? He was vague and, and meandering. Sure. And basically he turned it into saying that he's not going to quit anytime soon and got a big round of applause from the journalists. Which, you know, of course, Clint Eastwood at what? He would have been 70 telling you he's not going to stop. Good for yeah. him. Good for him. But I don't think he wants to think about it. I I think that's the point of it. And that's why true crime works as well as it does, because it's Mm -hmm. messy. But the Crusader Clint thing that he's been doing his whole career is embodied in this film. It's about a guy who cannot do anything right except the thing that people count on him to do, which is save someone's life. And it it, it does all seem to draw like a straight line back to the westerns right like yeah. it all comes back to that sort of and and again that's not a, that's not a judgment but it does feel like you know he was that's where he cut his teeth that's where he sort of built this persona and it all feels like those western tropes again not a negative feel kind of in the dna of so many things that he's done um, which is why when i feel like he takes a swing i mean a perfect world again Forgive me, Kenny, I haven't seen it in a long time, but that's a Coster's playing a villain in that film, is he not? Is he playing like a basically yeah. a kidnapping murderer? He's, well he's it, it's interesting. It's interesting you should say that, right? Like yeah. yes, Kevin Costner's playing a villain and a bad guy, but there's also the core relationship of this movie, which is, you know, kind of this guy regaining his humanity by taking care of this vulnerable child. And I think, you know, as you're talking about what you're talking about, Norman. And the thing that I kind of kept going back to, and, and part of the reason I find Clint so fascinating is so many of his movies. First of all, there's this great little monologue James Woods gives about issues, right? Yeah. About we 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 put these issues out in the newspaper only because we want to sell things to people in a palatable way, but all they really want is sex and sex and blood and et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, I think Clint is presenting that in, uh, in in such a way to, you know, get the audience thinking about the way he presents his films. Because so many of Clint's films are about issues. And in almost all of his films, I think he's on the right side of the issue. Right? I think he's on the right side of the issue here. I think he's on the right side of the issue in Million Dollar Baby. I think he's the right side of the issue of Changing. I think he's the right side of the issue pretty much all of his movies. And I think there's – the, the the Clint character is this version of masculinity that I think we all – sort of white masculinity that I think we all wanted to believe was everybody. Right? So – like an aspirational manhood sort of thing. Like if you were the if you were righteous enough that you could be this more, yeah. Where where when it 
when it comes to his own life, there's a Bill Clinton thing, right? <laughs> they may be a total piece of shit in their own life, but when it comes to the rest of us, they understand the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, f- storytelling generally relies on the idea that, that your hero has a working moral compass. So whether or not they're a hero or an anti-hero or a tragic hero who's betrayed their working moral compass, it makes sense. And I think Clint Eastwood's characters always have a working moral compass. What's so upsetting to me is I think that this film, I love, I actually love parts of this film. I love that Clint is calling himself out, calling out characters like this, making it very clear that what he's doing, particularly with Mary McCormick in the beginning, but a lot of the other things he's doing are, are morally wrong. But in the end of the day, he's a value add to society. What's so upsetting to me is all these people now who are prominent in society who have not working moral compasses, who are sure. outright villains, who are, who are the anti-Clints, who in the end of the day have chosen villainy or, or don't understand right and wrong. And I think for a person like Clint, because Clint has given interviews, he can't really understand the Trump thing either. I think for a person like Clint, what's happening in the Republican Party has got to be so discombobulating. This idea that at the end of the day, these people aren't protecting the vulnerable. These people aren't on the side of right. Uh, so that really affected me in its own way that, you know, I want my bad guys to look like Clint Eastwood. Uh, I want my bad guys in the end of the day to, you know, I correctly identify villains and problems and we can at least work on, you know, ways to solve the problems instead of, you know, denying reality. Yeah, it's it's I think it's 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 a weird movie. I mean, Kenny and I texted a little bit about it and and it it definitely is trying to say something um even in a sort of messy or or somewhat messy is the wrong word, if anything maybe in too simplistic a fashion. Um I I think that it's a fascinating movie. I think that it also falls in a strange period in his career. He's got absolute power in 97. Yeah. Which he which stars. I, I in. really, really don't like. And oh, he's got Midnight yeah. in the Garden of Geneva, which he directs, which is not is in, terrible. which is yeah. not it, good. It, it's weird. Old Kevin Spacey of it. It was a bad. Sure, movie. like this, and also like a hip book, doing like a week, a movie a week, basically just yeah, grinding through his scripts like it was work, like it was television. And they're giving him the best IP. Like yeah, like I mean, Bridges of Madison Power, County and and Midnight in the Garden of Evil are huge books. Those three, because Absolute Power was a really big book Absolute too. Power was the, a big deal, yeah. That was those were those, those were the biggest books to, that anyone could adapt, adapt at that time. They're yep. very very different from each other. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. Like, he had that he had that angle too. As he got older, his audience stayed with him as opposed to dropping off. Yes. The way a lot of them do. A lot of a lot of you know like middle aged to seniors filmmakers or filmmakers mm-hmm. audiences will just kind of diffuse and go off and find other things. And Eastwood's people are Eastwood's people for life. Like they're still watching his movies mm-hmm. now. They're 80 and 90 and he's mm-hmm. 70 and 80. Well, he's, he's a, he's a, you know, uh, a bearing wall at Warner brothers. I mean, yeah. he, he's, you know, I mean, he's been, he's been basically allowed to do essentially whatever he wants for the better part of, you know, 30, 40 years, but oh, yeah, he I mean, does. When was Mel Paso established 76 with Josie Wales? I think it was in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been paralyzed since. So he does uh, Midnight Garden Good and Evil, which is not good in 97. He does True Crime in 99. Then in 2000, he's got Space Cowboys. 2002, he's got Bloodwork. And then in 2003, he's got Mystic River. 2004, Million Dollar Baby. So he does those. Those two back-to-back put him obviously back in sort of 
I mean, if, if the Academy Awards mean anything, they certainly put him back in the good graces of that, but mm. also just in terms of critical acclaim and, and, and all of the various things that, you know, that, that people clamor for. Yeah, um, and it's a return on investment for Warner, right? Because he doesn't, he's not sure. expensive. And if they go through, like Woody Allen, if you go through five or six duds and then something comes along and gets four but or five this options, one, it's worth it. This one, was, this one wasn't cheap. This one was <laughs> 55 and it, it came in at 16 million. So like they, they, they took a bath oh. on true crime. Sorry? Zero, sorry, $55 million and a $60 million gross or 16? I didn't know. One, one six. six. Yeah, that makes way more sense. Yeah, it's, yeah they took a bath on this one. What's interesting when you run through Clint's career as a, as a director is, you know, again, he, yeah. he doesn't, I believe he directed his first film at 38, something like that. Play Misty for me was like 38 or maybe a little older. 41, so, I think, because he was born, I just, I just looked this up. He was born so in 40. Okay, so 41, he directs his first film. Not old for filmmaker, quite young, actually. Yeah. But that was in the 70s. Mm. Yeah. And then by the end of the 80s, he's doing he's doing Dirty Harry uh, sequels. I think he's basically declared dead at that point as a filmmaker. Comes back with, un, with Unforgiven in 92. Yeah. Has his great run in the middle of the 90s. Then yeah. we're in the middle of another period where Clint is declared dead as a filmmaker. Right? <laughs> Yeah. Comes back in 2003, 2004, uh, and the two war films in 2006, biggest filmmaker in the world. Then, in the end of this, this decade, kind of declared dead as a filmmaker again. Yeah. It's like Changeling, it, Invictus, Hereafter, yes, Jay Edgar. Yes. Like, yeah. Jersey Boys. It's like, it's, yeah. it's like American we went too far with this guy. We're, we're done with this guy. Like, he's lost his fastball. Then he makes Gran Torino, right? Like, right around then? Or, yeah. or, we know he makes American Sniper in 2014, which is a gargantuan hit. American yeah, Sniper and, and yeah. Sully's right around then. Yeah. This guy yeah, again. And then he comes back in his fucking 80s and he's the hottest <laughs> filmmaker. He, I, I'm telling you, there, there are at least four, at least yeah. four distinct periods where people are where like, like yeah, he's done. Yeah, he's done. The yeah. thing was fun. He won an Oh, yeah. he's back. He's done. He won, whoa, he's, and not just he's back like he made fucking yeah. Midnight Paris. You know, he <laughs> came back and made the biggest original studio movie, like of all fucking time, at least the last 20 years. American Sniper is one of the biggest success stories of the last 20 years. Uh, it's crazy what this guy has but done. Also, you know, it's interesting to harken back to a little bit, Norm, what you were saying um, about the, the, the Spielberg hereafter thing, right? Because Spielberg mm-hmm. almost does American Sniper. Yeah. Now, what's Spielberg's American Sniper versus what Clint's American Sniper? Two very, de- I mean, these are obviously, you know, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat. I mean, these are two very different perspectives on this, on, on, on this man, right? So, I'd be genuinely curious to see what Spielberg's version of American Sniper is, obviously, versus Clint's. I would argue there's a reason why Clint's made so much money. I think we all know that the far right used this, propped this film up as as oh, being... Oh, it's a movie of the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was a very different thing. Um, but again, what's also interesting about Clint is that I would argue he doesn't really weaponize his politics. Like, I don't think that this man, like, there, there's a version where he's on Fox News talking about American Sniper. And yeah. that just never happened. Yeah. Which, again, makes me respect the guy that much more to say, like, listen, you know I'm a Republican, moderate Republican is my assumption. And he's a you know, libertarian. Like, he's, a, he's, right, a, right. He's, he's a registered libertarian. Yeah. Um, well, he thinks he's a libertarian. He's a Republican. I mean, like, it's... Well, <laughs> 
most, <laughs> most libertarians are Republicans that insist that they're not just because I, it's a way of distancing themselves from the world, from the direction the Republican Party has taken in the last 40 years. Like since Reagan. With you, Norm, I think, I think libertarians are, you know, coward Republicans. They're lying. But, <laughs> but they do, but, but there, there is, there is some value to the idea that they don't, um, they, they don't ascribe to that label. And sure, correct, yeah, correct. I think that they're, I think that the, the libertarian streak runs through his, movies i think you know i think the right to end your own life on your own terms is a very libertarian idea i think the i think a government not being able to kill its own citizens is a libertarian idea um i think libertarians you know for the most part 30 percent of their ideas you know kind of co coincide 30 35 40 percent coincide with progressivism because you know it's really really these ideas generally are about personal liberty and and i think we progressives feel the same way when it comes to our own lives. Um, I think that what, what makes Eastwood's politics so murky in his films is that he doesn't reshape the scripts. Like he, it comes back to not rewriting. He doesn't impose himself on the movies he makes uh, in yeah. the, in the text stage when they're being created as narratives, he shoots the script. And that means that like the thing I find most fascinating, cause I don't really, think American Sniper is a particularly good movie. It's kind of like, it's the same usual mess of lame detail and uh, in different direction. But yeah. Bradley Cooper's performance is actively arguing against the heroism that Eastwood is trying to put on him because Cooper is playing the depression and the bipolar and the anger and the, and the rage and the confusion. And it's, that's a fascinating performance. And I think Spielberg's movie would have actually been more in line with that and it might've made it a lesser experience. Because you're watching the film kind of insist that this guy's a straight up hero, and Cooper just refusing to play him that way. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't disagree. And I and and you know, truthfully, I'm I'm not sure that Spielberg's version of this film is effective. Or or I mean, I, there's a reason why he didn't do it. I think ultimately, mm -hmm. I think that. But I, I do think that you talk about sort of Clint not imposing or or, or not rewriting. I, I I believe that to be true. I'll say that with this film, with True Crime, he did make one sort of imposition on it, which is that he wanted to switch the race of the character from the book. Um, in the book, he's white. Um, and by that, I mean the, the, the so prisoner that Isaiah Washington's character um, was white. Um, and he felt that the film you know, had more to say if, if there was sort of more race involved in it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree, but I also don't necessarily feel like he's, you know, got a ton to say about the race component of this either, if I'm being completely honest. I mean, but I understand why he wanted to do it, but did you I, feel, did you, did you I, think that he, okay. I think okay. I know why he wanted to do it. Okay. I think he wanted to be able to say to that black mother that the prisoner on death row is black too. And I think what he also wanted to do was present what mm -hmm. was, was make this argument that he's been making in the media for about 20 years, which is um, essentially people uh, speaking as Clinton, people like me aren't racist um, and stop calling me racist. Cause I'm not a racist, right? Ask anyone I know I'm not a racist. And I think that this is a very personal issue for white men of a certain age. Um, this idea of I've been, uh, I've been racially progressive my whole life. I've never actively, you know, said anything racist. How dare you call me racist? 
And this idea of I will not bother to even listen to the arguments that I or people like me are part of a patriarchal, a white patriarchal society um, because I know it's in my heart. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I really think that's where Clint comes from. I really think Clint goes I to bed. I believe that to be true. I think he yeah. goes to bed with a clear conscience, and I think he thinks that he's been you know, value-add when it comes to the, the racial fight. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a big deal in, what, 75 in the Iger Sanction when he cast Vanetta McGee as the love interest, who was a black woman in 1975 in a, in a Bondish spy movie that he played the lead in. The movie's ridiculous, but that was important then, and it probably was something he took a great deal of pride in. I think I mean I, I think that there are a lot of people over the last fifty years who have been both part of the solution and part of the problem. Yeah. Um and I think well, I mean if you if you've done any one good thing in your mind, you're you know, you're a champion, right? It doesn't right. matter what else you may have unconsciously done. Right. Yeah, I, I think Clint Eastwood absolutely sees himself as a guy who came up from nothing and is, you know, still an underdog, even though he's been doing what he does very specifically for fifty years. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you know to the to the the Clint of it, the 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 racial discussion of it. I think that's what twenty twenty has been about. I think that's what the the social justice movement in twenty twenty has been about. I I I think everybody understands that there are actual villains out there who are actually working against you know the advancement yeah. of people of color. Sure. I think that the other part is that there are people who are just refusing to listen to the arguments because of their privilege and comfort. And I think Clint falls into that category. Um, and he's 90 and he's never going to change. But I do, I think that's why I, I didn't have like white savior issues with this movie the way I do with a lot of other movies like this. It didn't have that. It didn't have that sheen on it to me or sheen's not the right word, that cloud over it the way it does in other movies. Cause I don't think that's where it came from, but I do think, that Clint's making, I, I do think that Clint's making a point that I'm on the right side of this issue and race is a part of this issue. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I completely agree. And I, and I would also second the fact that I didn't think of this as white savior either. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the, you know, about this, about the white savior component in um, green mile many, many moons ago. Oh, yeah, um, but that's yeah, what, like you know that what I mean. Tune of itself, sure, 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 exactly. sure, and and it also mixes in all sorts of other unfortunate tropes about yeah. magical African American characters and any number of other things. So th- that that film is very different. But but this film, to your point, Kenny, I think remains grounded enough. And again, this comes back to sort of stylistically the choices that Clint makes. The movie feels pretty lived in, all things considered. You know what I mean? I think that it, it it's. I have my issues, and we'll talk about those as well, but. I think that the film is surprisingly effective when it's kind of playing itself pretty like calmly. The problems get into when it takes kind of big swings. <clears throat> Kenny just decided to leave. Um, I never there decided to leave. I just closed my door. He calls me on every episode. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I thought you were muffling a sneeze, frankly. So, uh, oh. but I but I think that the film I, I think the film works a lot better. When it's when it's not like dialed up to eleven, when it gets really dramatic, I feel like unfortunately yeah, it becomes, it loses it becomes a joke movie at the end of the player, which is like you know kind of <laughs> exactly. a weird, yeah. kind of a weird exactly. thing to do. You know, nine years after the player was an actual movie <laughs> that made fun of this exact trope. 
Clint Eastwood is a player. I mean, <laughs> Clint Eastwood never watched the player. No, no, there's no I, way. I, I, like, I can actually believe that Clint Eastwood and Robert Altman were the like each other's antithesis. Yeah, the, yeah they're they're either, either end of the spectrum. Because yeah. Altman's arcs and peaks were always a couple of years ahead of Eastwood's. Like he'd be like he would similarly he would just go make terrible terrible movies that nobody saw that like that string of stage adaptations in the 80s after secret honor uh and then come roaring back in like 91 or 92 with with the player and, and shortcut it's, and it's for, funny though i do think that the the venn diagram of the two of them is that they're both curmudgeonly old white guys old. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're you know like Altman's the pothead and Eastwood's the one who smokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. proper tobacco, hand rolled cigarettes yeah. or something. They're, they're, yeah. Which you know, famously he won't do except in a in a movie. Yeah, yeah, I know it's great. But he really, yeah, he is. He's like he's he's a phony when it comes to that. Um, <laughs> I'm, gonna, uh, I'm gonna read the synopsis of this film really quick for our listeners. Uh, journalist Steve Everett, played by Clint Eastwood, has been sober two months, but things are still going badly. Steve's marriage to Barbara, played by Diane Vernora. Uh, is barely holding together, and his editor, Dennis Leary, hates him since Steve has been having an affair with his wife. A chance assignment finds Everett interviewing death row inmate Frank Beecham, played by Isaiah Washington. When Everett uncovers evidence indicating Beecham may be innocent, he must race against time to uncover the truth. True Crime opened on March 19th, 1999, in third place behind Forces of Nature and Analyze This. It would go on to make $16 million on a $55 million budget. It's got 54% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 49 from audiences. I'm going to read a very brief, or not very brief, but a little a little bit of Ebert's review. <laughs> it's a doozy. Uh, Clint Eastwood's True Crime <laughs> follows, the, follows the rhythm, three stars, by the way, follows the rhythm of a newspaper man's day. For those who cover breaking news, many days are about the same. When they begin, time seems to stretch out generously towards the deadline. There's leisure for coffee and phone calls, jokes, and arguments. Then a blip appears on the radar screen, an assignment, seemingly a simple assignment. Then the assignment reveals itself as more complicated. The reporter makes some calls. If there's anything to the story at all, a moment arrives when it becomes to the reporter the most important story of the war in the world. His mind shapes the form it should take. He badgers sources for missing pieces. The deadline approaches. His attention focuses. The finish line is the only thing visible in the facts, story, deadline, and satisfaction all come at the same time. A deadline reporter's day, in other words, is a lot like sex. There's the Roger Ebert I know. There's uh, the Roger Ebert we all know. Like, I'm going to be about being Jimmy Breslin and then somehow link it back to... He's so great. I mean, I love, I love how Ebert, Ebert is. Like, that's he's yeah. just so great, you know? And you can totally see this film playing into Roger's, like, I barely knew him, uh, into his legend of himself. Like, the, the, mm-hmm. the self-embiggening thing that he was doing at that point. And, totally. you know, more power to him. But if you come out of this movie thinking you've seen yourself in any form... <laughs> You're just not doing your life right. Um, <laughs> Norm, have you, have you worked as a as a deadline journalist or a reporter in that respect? I've, re- in, I've in this kind of- not really. I've reported stuff to deadline, but it's entertainment industry stuff. I, I once had a, I had a front page story one time in the Star about the type of seats that were coming to movie theaters. <laughs> and it, I remember thinking even then that it was the dumbest thing they'd ever asked me to do. But it was basically because nobody else wanted to do it and I was freelance. Uh, so you never say no, but no, I can't. I mean, I've, I've been in a newsroom. I've worked in a newsroom and it's fun. It is fun. It's also, he gets the quiet bitchiness of everybody. Like totally. every single character in that space wants to be doing something else. And I'm assuming it's straight out of the book. Cause it's so unlike Eastwood to appreciate that sort of exchange. But the, the scenes with the style columnist who only speaks in, in headlines, yeah. and what, what now sounds like she's vomiting out SEO mm-hmm. is amazing. 
that's just beautiful. Yeah, I I have to say that, and 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 he did this pretty well. I got to be honest in. Um, uh, Richard Jewell as well. Uh, mm-hmm. He he covers. I, I like the way that Clint sees a newsroom. The way he sees. Uh, I don't want to say the way he sees media necessarily, but I guess the way he sees media being generated. Let's put it that way. I I, I found those scenes. They crackled like you mentioned the James Woods, Dennis Leary, Clint Eastwood. It's you know. Those are three guys in a room that you probably would watch. I mean, like would want to watch what they have to say to each other. And and he is successful in doing that. Um, yeah, it, weirdly, the movie doesn't feel like uh, like a reporter movie to me. If that makes any sense, oh, like no, it's, no. it's, it's, it's more of a four-hour ticking clock story that has no pace, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just there's that scene where the warden and his and his uh, guards are having lunch, and you're like, what time? He's already had to bang Bob's wife to go in late. He's been to has he been to the zoo yet? What time of day is this happening? Yeah, it's it's like in twenty four when like you know Jack Bauer does a million things in the span of twenty four hours, and you're like, I'm not really sure this all can be crammed into one day. It's like I mean, what you guys seem to be getting at is it's such a bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yet, I mean, I I totally feel like I was watching the movie, being like, this is like such a Bad movie, and yet I liked it. <laughs> I feel that way. I, like, there's there's something about like the Eastwood la- house style or lack thereof, mm. the yeah. point and shoot of it that feels so unfussy and unprecious that mm. I really enjoy being like being with him as he covers these worlds um, as. Like as absurd and like dumb and like meandering as as this plot can be, um. So I, yeah, I, I I agree with everything you said. This movie sucks, but also kind of is great. I, no, I kind of I kind of liked it. I mean, I, I enjoyed watching it. I wasn't bored necessarily, although it starts a little bit a little bit slow. It's pretty like it's like second gear for almost the entire film. And yeah, it kind of burps into third. <laughs> yeah. But it's comfortable, right? Like there's a, a third is is a great way of putting it. It's the only way to get around Dead Man's Curve. Like the fact that there's a place called Dead Man's Curve in 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 Oakland in 1999. It's there is some sort of sense that like and and this I kept thinking about this watching the movie. He's 69. He's playing it like he's 45, and I think. Yeah. Part of that is that the character is unaware of how much of a relic he is and how pitiful it is that he's hitting on 23-year-olds sure. who are, like, because it's Mary McCormick, she's 30 because you can't cast an actual 23-year-old against Clint Eastwood because it will look like his great-granddaughter. Um, the so movie, then, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know if he knows it, but the movie knows it, which is oh, really fascinating because it's it. his movie. I think that's why I like it. I think that I, I was I was shocked by that opening scene, right? Like, or that scene with him and Mary McCormick, where he actually yeah. kiss, to, to kiss her, and she's basically like, "You're disgusting." Like what you just did to me is disgusting. Yeah. Uh, but he's and also I, getting her drunk, and that's what kills her, which is fascinating. The film takes yeah. no responsibility totally. for that at all. He's, he and in every, I mean, Norm, you, you you were saying this earlier, but it, but in every interaction, he's a piece of fucking trash. Oh yeah, no, he like, makes he, every situation worse by he just does. by. And I think that's part of why I, that's part of why I like the movie because I never felt I never felt condescended to right like a lot of these crusader movies and I think that it's an interesting thing we haven't done the movie yet and we will at some point but 
Hurricane is um, the Hurricane is kind of a classic white savior movie. The problem with so bad much. movie. The problem with that movie is, in particular, is it was uh, directed by a Canadian. But the other part of that movie, I was <laughs> no, he says the two Canadians. I think he's, I, I, I think I Kenny. I think Kenny is right. I, I think. <laughs> Like the, I think the biggest problem with the hurricane and a lot of these other like it's Paul Greengrass just made News of the World. I don't know if either of you have seen it yet, but it, no, this, yeah. I'm looking forward to it though. It's okay, but but just as with the hurricane, like you've got an outsider coming into a system and showing you everything that's wrong with it or everything that he thinks he's wrong oh, with it. And that's why I hate Three Billboards so much. Yeah, I mean, you just um, like that. Three that billboards one works for me because of the caricature of Like everybody in it is. An exaggeration, so it's like it's all in the same pitch. But it yeah, very, like, it, it, it felt like, very like I'm sh- I'm shining the light on you guys. I know what you're all about. But back to the hurricane. The problem with the hurricane yeah. is it's a true story, right? So I mean, there, it was a re- true story. By the time it became a movie, it's a well, complete distortion. No, but I, no, I know. But I, I'm saying just to, to be returning for the hurricane. I can feel this. The, the, the issue with the hurricane is you know uh, Ruben Carter really was helped by. The Innocent Projects, right? The Innocent Projects of Canada, I believe. Oh, the Canadian, um, you know, with seven people that are collapsed down to like three, one of whom is English somehow in, in the movie. And, and, yeah, and the other, like the fault of the movie, the other flaw of the movie too is that it puts all of his guilt, all of all of his persecution on Dan Hedaya's character who didn't exist. Like, mm-hmm. Jewison couldn't handle the idea that the system was so corrupt, so he made a villain. Which is and, the, you know, that's the opposite of Clint, right? Yeah, it, yeah. The one thing that you could see through Clint's movies his non-war movies, for the most part, the one thing, he, the one system he does seem to trust is the defense system. But from the westerns to the movies about the media to the movies about the, you know government oversight, like Sully, is uh, I don't trust these systems. These systems are rotten to the core, which I think is I think what we feel, or at least what I feel. Um, but just back to the, the the point about the hurricane is generally these these white saviors are so fucking good. They're so fucking good, and I am so fucking condescended to and patronized by being on their, you know, their righteous journey. There, the Sandra Bullock and Blindside. Uh, I yeah. only I know the way journey, and Clint knows nothing in this movie except that he <laughs> has the ability to go into these rooms, and he has the ability to go into these, you know, to, to go into these houses, and he has the ability to like just just work around the clock and try yeah. to get the right thing done. Um, it doesn't matter how much it fucks up his life. And I, I really love that it fucks up his life. Can like I in say the one end, other thing is about yeah, the yeah, hurricane, though? Um, which is that wasn't there also the whole, like, Malcolm X component of this, too, right? Like, Norman Jewison was trying to make Malcolm X for the longest time. Spike Lee, obviously, is like, no, like, <laughs> don't, don't do that. Um, and and, and, and so. thankfully, and, right. And thankfully, Spike Lee made the film and it's a masterpiece. The hurricane feels almost like a reaction against that a little bit too, right? Which is him, Jewison, perhaps looking for some other, not just another movie to work with Denzel Washington on, but perhaps something that that he felt he could make that would talk about yeah. similar issues. Well, when, when he brought it to TIFF, it was the most important movie about race relations ever made. And then we all saw it and it's like, oh, no, it, no, it's no, not. It's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, went in with like this, yeah. this feeling of this this crusade movie and it just... You know, it's it's what happens when you don't actually again when you're when you're a stranger to the subject when you're a foreigner yeah. to the to the world you just miss but the I, boat. I also think that, and we've we've sort of talked around this a little bit this idea uh, in the last you know hour that we've been talking. But I I I, I kind of want to hone in a little bit on Clint Eastwood not 
quote unquote, caring as much about the films that he's making also makes them not feel quote unquote, important. Like he doesn't seem to be making important movies, even though he's making movies about important issues. So it, it, it does sort of, it's got this push and pull that I do think is fascinating, right? Like I remember sitting down in the theater for million dollar baby, having no idea that that film was about, about euthanasia. Me neither. and then it happens and you're like, it just knocks you on your ass. Yeah. Well, now, I mean, again, it's not about euthanasia, right? Like it's the, it's the it's, end yeah, of the movie yeah. and it's, it becomes yeah. about that well, because people were shouting like about 40 it. 40 minutes. Yeah, but it's about the relationship between these two characters yes. and how yes. much yes. he loves her that he's willing to do that for her and to her. So, But, it's, it, but it, it speaks – issue yeah. is, is, is in orbit of the story. The story is the reason that he made the movie. Well, that's, that's what I think – I mean there are a bunch of things that make Clint Eastwood a very good filmmaker – He's got I a think, light I, touch. I think what Norm just think said is what makes him a really good filmmaker. <laughs> I think he just nailed it. Like, I think yeah. that that's, yeah, I, 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 of course the movie's about the two, these two characters. And he was obviously taken by this relationship. And it just so happened to end the way it ended in the script that he was given by Paul Haggis. And, um, and, he, didn't shy, and he didn't shy away from that. I, yeah. I I I really love that about Clint because these movies are never actually about the issues. They're actually always yeah. about the relationships, um, or as Norm said in the beginning. And, and I would I would also say that the Clint's relationship with mortality. But yeah, go ahead. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I would also say, too, that the best way to get an important issue through to a person who might not be willing to hear that issue is through storytelling, right? It is through making them care about the character, telling a good story, and showing through that, you know, perhaps two sides of a, of, a, of a thorny issue, which I think, again, Clint does very well. I mean, I don't think that any of us are necessarily writing for this film, but I would also say that it's a pretty light touch until it's not. <laughs> but I, I do think that, I don't know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of exactly what you're saying, Norm, that, 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 that he's... When push comes to shove, he's, he's a guy who just wants to tell you a story, right? And And sometimes he's more interested in the story than others. But 
I also just want to uh, highlight one other thing that, that Ebert said in his review that I think is worth noting because it, it folds into what we're talking about here. He says, true crime has a nice rhythm intercutting the character's problems at home, his interviews with the prisoner, his lunch with a witness, his unsettling encounter with the grandmother of another witness, and then at the midnight hour of execution draws closer, Eastwood tightens the noose on an exorably mounting tension. Maybe it's time for a movement in favor of quote-unquote real movies, movies with tempo and character, details and style, instead of action fest with attention deficit disorder syndrome. Clint Eastwood could be an honorary chairman. I think there's something to that as well a little bit, right? I think the reason people still love Clint Eastwood's movies is because he's one of the few guys that can kind of make these type of movies, right? That can make just an an old style, clean movie that you know where you stand with the characters. He's going to tell you a good story and and like that. Yeah, I I don't hold anything against his we, you know, you could derogatorily call it middle brow approach, yes, which is just sure. nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost never does anything digitally. There's no yeah. effects. Like Space Cowboys is the anomaly because it's yeah. got got CG spaceships, but it's actually not that. It's like it's a pretty good movie. Uh, as these things sure. go, are, well, no, it's as like, far as as far as sending octogenarians into space, but, but, but that's what I mean. On the continuum of the Eastwood films about aging and still being relevant, just the idea that he yeah. saw Armageddon and thought, "I got, I idea. could do that." Yeah, <laughs> it's the theory works. Yeah. Like it actually his, plays. His um, worst movies are. Definitely middle brow movies. Yeah. His best movies are super highbrow, and the only thing that are the only thing that are keeping it out of that conversation is a film yeah. by Clint Eastwood. I right? Think I, mean, I don't think I don't think you get more. I don't kind of think you get more elevated than than Unforgiven. Honestly, I think Unforgiven is 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 such a deep, rich movie that doesn't present itself. As such, but I think um, if you cast someone else, it's not as powerful either. And he knew that. Like he bought the script in the yeah. '80s and sat on it for a decade until he was old enough to play yeah, William Wonder convincingly. It's like that's what I mean about his awareness of his own iconography. Like that movie is arguing against the westerns he made with Leone and 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 mm-hmm. uh, uh, Don Siegel, and it's just it's incredible because of it. It's because he chose to have this argument with his own history. Right. I also wanted to 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 say something earlier when you guys were talking about his persona um, and and how he perceives himself as a sex symbol. I think is also quite interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting that he makes Bridges of Madison County, which is not a Clint Eastwood type vehicle, yeah. right? Like that's not something that you would ever expect him to direct, star in. It's an understanding in himself that he can get there. That he has this sort of this, quite frankly, this sweetness and this 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 romantic side that you just wouldn't have really associated with him so really every movie he does after that even this movie in particular like the scene he has with his wife is a great scene it really did make me think about bridges of madison county and how he's able to go to those places um and then he has two threesomes in the mule and you're just like there's a part of me that sometimes maybe he's just like fucking with us (laughs) I just, I just don't know that he even like cares about how we perceive him, and he's just having fun with that. It's a kind of vulnerability and self-deprecating sense. A little of himself, bit, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, I would like to believe. I couldn't that, imagine. Otherwise, the mule is just a huge miscalculation. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine what life would be like if you were as hot as Clint Eastwood was in the fifties and sixties. <laughs> Um, like yeah. Scott Eastwood, his son is very hot and is like the ugliest man next to old pictures of Clint Eastwood. So to have been that hot 
and had been like, and you know, his, his history is he's been married a bunch of times. He's, he's openly cheating on those wives with more beautiful women. Like he's like, he has just had women throwing throwing themselves at him his whole life. It must be very weird to all of a sudden be old, but still be in fucking great shape. Uh, and I don't even know how you, how you come to groups with that, that particular their fact that, um, that well, I no it, longer am the hottest man in every room I walk into. It should also be said he has everywhere, right? Because it's yeah. on posters and movie yeah. stills and movie theaters are still showing your old self yeah. feet high, right? It and, should also and be and said that Clint father. has a lot of children out of wedlock, some of which that he will not even acknowledge are his children. One of so, whom is in this film and <laughs> her mother plays the district attorney, right? Like Francis yes. Fisher is... I think they had already stopped being a couple by that point. They Four years heard. after. Four, Four years, years after. after. Yeah. Which I, and, you know, she was in. Um, she was in another one of uh, his post their post relationship movies as well. I think she might have been. I can't remember. Maybe Garden the Garden of Good and Evil, but um, yeah, something along. But I guess uh, that's good because that means they continued to really. And she brought Bernard Hill over from Titanic, which is still something I don't fully understand. Like, it's just, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. This whole movie feels like there's a comfort feel to it where it's just like Diane Venora was in Bird and, and gave like probably the best performance of her career in that. And no one But Michael it. McKean is. This. And Mike, yeah, Mike Michael McKean is the, as the pastor. I'm not. I just don't know what to make of that performance. Uh, the, the character is absurd. And the performance now. is not great. And he's my favorite actor right now because I'm such a better call Saul. Sure. Yeah. But. Um, that's another fucking Clint thing where, you know, where, where me and him are just on the same page. Like, fuck the church. <laughs> yeah, that is. Like, that's a crazy thing for a Republican yeah. to put out there, which is like the ultimate villain of this is a smarmy reverend who sneaks into, who sneaks into death row to try to coax should try to coax confessions out of death row inmates. Yeah, like, like, I, I like the idea too that McKeon is the ultimate Eastwood villain because he's just not very good at his job, but he, like, yeah. he thinks he is. And and again, you can see Eastwood in every movie he's ever made as an action hero, just looking at that lieutenant who gets in the way. Right? It's it's uh, it's Paul Gleason in Die Hard. It's the Dick who just shows up and makes everything worse. And. I was amazed because I had forgotten McKeon was in this film because it's not a memorable performance. But he shows up now and, and uh, Kate, had my wife, hadn't seen the film before. And she's like, that's, that's, that's Jimmy's brother from Better Call Saul. I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. just you wait. And there's that moment where he sort of sidles up to the other guards while they're having the lunch scene, right? Like he just mm-hmm. kind of comes up and tries to join them and none of them likes him. And it's <laughs> – like that's the kind of storytelling that Eastwood because he, he I'm sure his only direction was ah they don't like you and <laughs> he plays it so McKean just plays it beautifully like this unctuous intentional kind of hey you know I'm the cool priest and no one can stand him and then later he fucks it up for everybody else like it's even before we've seen him do anything wrong uh, right up until that point he was just trying to be helpful maybe in the wrong way but as far as we could tell he was trying to do his job and then you just gradually realize how much of a dick this guy is and how toxic he is to the space he works in i kind of love yeah. that and then, and then want, want, doesn't try to make it sympathetic in the least no i want to throw something else out which is another kind of to me uh point in eastwood's favor hmm. actors love working with him and why wouldn't you um you only have to do it once or twice. Yeah, he asks and, nothing of you, and sometimes you get an Oscar nomination. Why wouldn't well, anybody? 
I, I mean, all right. There's one way to say. There's, there's one way to put it. Is he asks not, nothing of you. The other thing is he gives you full autonomy over your performance. Right. Sure. You're Bradley Cooper, and you've decided to characterize his character in this way, and he lets you go. Um, I, I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's fundamental to me. I have a hard time since I've been in this business. I have a hard time looking at performances from actors the same way as I used to the multiple takes. And then the way the film comes together in the edit, I understand of course that the actors are making all their decisions, but on set actors are making dozens of decisions. Actors are making in the same role, in the the same scene, dozens of decisions. And then the director and the editor and the producer are deciding which ones work best for the performance which ones work best for the film and that seems that feels to me like in my bones like you are taking the art away from the artist when you do that to some extent that film and television actors are are less respected in our medium than they are on stage where you got one shot and i like the idea that you make your you make your choice you go out there, you perform your choice the way you wanted to make your choice with, with, with whatever direction you get from your director and whatever you take from the screenplay and from your uh, co-actors and ever all the you know and son around you or whatever. And that's it. And that's the performance. The performance is the performance. So there, to me, there is something kind of beautiful and natural and organic about that that I know not to be true in almost every other film, particularly like a Fincher film where you're doing 150 takes right. uh, of every scene. And yeah, I mean, I mean he's going to like one of them, I guess. Um, and I, I love Fincher deeply. He's probably my favorite director, but um, it's just, it's a different thing when it comes to acting. You know, you, you, you bring up the acting and obviously in this film and, 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 you know, we've talked about him a couple times I didn't know he was in this movie. I didn't know James Woods was in this movie until I pressed play on this movie. And, and you know, James Woods is one of those guys, I've talked with friends about this, and, and even David Sims talked about it recently on, a, on one of their podcasts. He, he's one of those guys that I'm very conflicted about now. I, I, I enjoy him as an actor. Um, he's in some of my favorite films. Um, you know, as a human, I, I have issues with him. Um, and the speech he gives in this film that Kenny mentioned earlier, um, coming out of James Wood's mouth, feels just different now than it would have felt, I imagine, in 1999. Um, but the guy has has something, right? Like, there's something electric about him. You know, in, in 99, we get, you know, this film, we have yeah, any given Sunday. and that we're doing. Suicides. What were the other two? He was in Play to the Bone. On the uh, and there's one other. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, and and the guy's got range. You know, it's just unfortunate that his brain is rotten as a human, and 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 that he's unfortunately lost touch with reality. But you know, in this film in particular, it's clear to me that you know, Clint said, "Do your thing." Like, I, I don't, I don't think that there was a, a lot of of direction going on here, yeah, uh, and I'm it totally correct. works. I'd be willing to bet that the coup's line was him because he has a, a <laughs> reputation for throwing in a line at the end of every scene. He's very proud of that. I, I interviewed him about Nixon, so 95. Oh, wow. And yeah, I, did, I did the press junket for that. That was amazing. And um, 
uh, and he and I got a one-on-one and, and it was this great long conversation. We talked about you know, like Cronenberg and Videodrome and everything mm. and just sort of rolled in. And he was really, really proud of how at the end of his scene, like he, he has this big moment where he leans into the camera and basically says, you know, we're next right after, after the big, um, sure. the, the beginning of the destruction of the Watergate illusion and he was really proud of like you know we're next it's like yeah what else would you say i i i don't know why you're that proud of this improvisation you were in character and you came up with the next <laughs> you basically next. Said. <laughs> and if you follow the logic of the scene in in this his pivot to um what are you a coos now which is just like nothing else his character says approximates yeah, that language yeah, or the misogyny <laughs> Yeah, he's like he's been sort of gently ribbing Eastwood about his skills as a coxman, but he's not ever going in the other direction of beating down the women who are who he's sleeping with. And to suddenly hear that, it's just like, oh, there's James Woods. There's James I, Woods. I, I there's, there is a there's a moment that I laughed out loud at, um, and it's not even a lie. Uh, it's so Clint tells James Woods that he thinks Beecham is innocent, just as James Woods is about to take a bite from a yeah, the Snickers bar. So. And and the the shot holds on him, un, so so yeah. blo- mind blown, unable to take a bite of the Snickers, cuts away to the prison, comes back, and he is still holding the Snickers and has not taken a bite. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Like that That's is Joel Cox, Oscar winning editor, right there. Yeah, he just he knows how to make that scene play. Like what's happening? Yeah, somebody. Um, but I can't remember yeah. who it was? But somebody once told me that the the value of James Woods is that he's the guy you enjoy but you don't necessarily like in a movie, and that's the like, perfect use of him here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the scene earlier, Norm, uh, which is it, it's it's I guess midway through the film, basically, uh, and, and Dennis Leary is is essentially trying to fire Clint, and James is trying to protect him but kind of not. Um, Dennis Leary playing this cuckolded, essentially yeah. husband, which is strange. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's great casting for Leary, right? Because he was just like off of this this run of working class hero movies and shows, sure. and to see him play someone with no power and who's just shifting on his feet constantly because he can't figure out where to push his anger, it's a good, like it's a good performance of an unplayable role. It's a little bit similar to the performance he gives in Thomas Crown Affair as well, where he also what? seems to be right. and also seems to be powerless. He's, he's, yeah. he's much better in this. Like he's more <laughs> in Thomas Crown. He's better used uh, in this, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, that, but like that scene with the scene with and I, I, I the news the the, the editor in chief. I don't even know. Like is Alan's the editor in chief, right? Like he's correct, the, correct, like, finding yeah. editor. The yeah. scene with Woods and Leary and Eastwood is sort of like this fascinating preview of where masculinity is going in mm-hmm. America because you mm-hmm. have the beta cuck who's the, the thing now. You have James Woods who will become like – who will play Rudy Giuliani in a few years uh, and then become him yeah. amazingly. And then Eastwood <laughs> has the Republican convention in his future but still manages to keep yeah. his identity as, a, as an independent. and. Very like, strange. It's like some sort of weird MAGA cocktail that no one figured out. Twenty one years later, and it's analyzing, and it's it's a fascinating <laughs> scene to watch. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm not going to lie. I watched it sort of in, yeah, like in in amazement that that this sort of lightning in a bottle had been concocted. Um, and, and I would also say too, you know, it's it's got real momentum. It obviously speaks to the plot of the film. He finds a way to kind of weasel his way into not getting fired by asking for, you know, uh, a few hours essentially. Um, but it's 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 a very interesting scene. And I'll tell you one of the other things that I thought was interesting in it is 
I mean, I didn't write down the, the line, um, but Dennis Leary talking about essentially his relationship with his wife and her and him being like, if she needs to get outside our marriage, to, yeah. th- that's her prerogative. And my marriage has nothing to do. Like it was a, a very reasoned and, and sort of logical way of, uh, it was just very interesting. It's just like, there's so much going on in this scene that to unpack. And yet I'm just like, I, I don't even know why it's in the movie. Yeah. I, it's the most progressive moment, right? It's like, I refuse to let my personal life influence my judgment. Yeah. This guy's a dick anyway. Well, yeah. that I love. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to that scene you're talking about because there's something very <laughs> there's something very unsettling about those three guys in a room together. Like yeah. I have watched many movies with three tough guys in a room. But when mm-hmm. the tough guys are Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, they're Pete Ray Liotta, they're people you can trust. That you yep. know they're not buying in to the bullshit. They're not buying into I can't – it's very unsettling watching James Woods and Clint Eastwood and Dennis Leary uh, <laughs> and not knowing where they stand when it comes to the material. Now, it shouldn't be, right? Uh, this whole – enjoying a movie like this and enjoying James Woods' performances is predicated on separating the artist from the art. Mm. But those three guys and not not having someone to ground yourself with is really really hard as yeah. a you know a nice liberal viewer in 2021. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I also want to is- say too that uh, the line that tips the scene that makes me really not know where I stand is when Clint tells Dennis to hit him and then hit his wife because she quote unquote likes, likes it. it, and you're just like, what are we? Where are we? Yeah. Like what? What's happening? Who's <laughs> Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? I don't understand what's happening. I can't tell if that scene is the best written scene in the movie or the worst because <laughs> yeah. an argument should be like, you know, you know the rule, right? Dramatically, an argument should never be about the thing you're arguing about. It should always be the yeah. undertone. It should be the subtext. Yeah. And this goes it's everywhere. All, like it's, it's, all, it's yeah. the, wow, shoot, what was it? It was uh, uh, William Goldman said that Robert Redford drove him insane writing All the President's Men because he never gave him a direction in which he to take the script. It was He always said, don't deprive me of any riches. That was his line. And it drove Goldman crazy. But this is that. Like, this is the, well, what if they actually have it out? What if they're fighting about this? What if it is about the story, but also about the, the fact that this guy can't, like, why? Because sh- ultimately, the whole movie's argument comes back to why should we trust Steve Everett to solve this crime, to mm-hmm. solve, to like, never mind figuring out who really did it. How can you prove this guy didn't do it? And yeah. how does this guy do that? Because he's such a total fuck up. Like he's a right. tornado of disaster who cannot, literally cannot take his daughter to the zoo without throwing her bodily out of her throat. <laughs> and but yeah, it's also, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's scene, right. I mean, the scene is there's no subtext to the scene, really. I mean, there's a little bit, but there's not much. It's it's overt. Yeah. Um, it's again, I agree with you, Norm, that it that it's probably the best scene in the movie, or at least the scene in the movie that's the most sort of odd. Like it just it jumps out at you. Yeah. Um, and then procedurally, the film itself, like in terms of how Clint puts together. I mean, the procedural part of this movie is not particularly interesting, and it's all kind of handed to him pretty much. It's it's lame, but I do yeah. think that that's part of it. Like, sure. all right, so your like question, the question, boredom of going through the research and, and interviewing yeah. people and going to the like the fact that he obsesses over and over again that people keep saying potato chips 
<laughs> like it becomes a mantra. You can't believe yeah. that that's the thing yeah. that he hooks on, but it is the thing that saves a life. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I assume intent, though. I find it hard to believe to that this was the intention here. Um, yeah. To Norm's question, why do we trust Steve ever? Why do we think Steve ever can do this? And it seems to me the answer is because he's willing to try, right? Um, and that's kind of all it takes. And, and a point I wanted to make earlier is one of the reasons why this doesn't bother me from a white savior point of view the way so many other movies like this bother me is because it, it makes the white savior so incredible. So it's not so much about uh, the white person saving. It's like this hero who this unique hero who happens to be white is the only person that can save this doomed black person. This movie seems to be saying that any white person <laughs> could have used their privilege if they were willing to look past what's going on here to solve this case. Not only that, like the, one of our worst white people was able <laughs> to put this together – because one of our worst white people was able to fail up to the position where yeah. he can, you know, go into this, go into these rooms and, and put this together. But the fact that the mystery isn't particularly deep and layered and compelling, I think, makes that case. And what it does, what this movie's secretly about is like. Sorry, I, I hate to interrupt. I just yeah, have yeah, to no, run outside for one second. Okay, I'm just going to sure. mute myself so this won't make a noise, but I'll be right back. Once okay. No problem. <laughs> I'm going to, should I keep going? Yeah, why not? What this movie is secretly about is good allyship. Good <laughs> allyship. This is this is how you can be an ally. You could use your privilege to advance the cause of people who do not have the same privilege as you. Obviously, it's incredibly heightened. It's a crazy <laughs> situation. But this yeah. is how this is how Clint is making that is making that argument, I think. Yeah, I yeah. This movie, it's funny. When you texted me the other last night when you were like, it's weird. And I was like, because at that point, I think I was about 45 minutes into the film. And I was like, well, it's not that weird. It's just kind of, it's just kind of. <laughs> and then by the end, I was like, yeah, this movie is just straight up strange. Like what it's, 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 you got three screenwriters, two work together. One seemed to work independently. Um, it, it does feel a little bit kind of cobbled together some stuff seems to pop more than others um you know th there does seem to be a little bit of uh you know some some dissonance of voices and what have you but but i ultimately think that if he had just dialed down the end a little bit and not gone so the player quite frankly mm -hmm. i think this film i mean I, i'm still going to give this a, a you know, a reasonably okay grade, I think, when everything is said and done. But, like, I think this one could have been actually pretty great if Clint had applied himself a little bit more. Like, again, only seen A Perfect World once. It was a long time ago. But there's an interesting parallel here in the sense of, like, if he had, you know, coming off of Unforgiven, he, I think he really applies himself to A Perfect World. I think yeah. it feels like, you know, post-Oscar, what he's happened. Also not, he's also not really in it. I mean, he's he's right, in it, right. but like it's, he's 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 very much a supporting character, right? But this film is coming after a couple duds, mm -hmm. a couple things that don't really connect. This feels a lot like a film of a guy who's like, eh, I don't know anymore, you know. Well, racing to save a, a prisoner on death row 
Yeah, racing down it's, Dead Man's Curve. Not a great yo. Know, I know where where a character died earlier, drunk driving. Racing to save a guy on like, death yeah, row yeah, yeah. is such a you know questionable move. <laughs> like it's a questionable storytelling move. It's a questionable ticking clock. Like the whole thing trivializes everything that comes before it, and it's a hard thing to stomach. Um, well, especially the way he draws it out too. I mean, yeah, it, uh, and then the music is crazy too. The score is crazy by the end. It's, I mean, yeah. and they're spending the whole movie explaining the way you kill someone, and yes. you know they do that in Dead Man Walking as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that only serves to make you feel even worse as all three of these things are administered. This actually serves to explain the mechanics that he's going to un- upend. Yeah. Yep. And put you in a position where you say, oh, I know that, like, the second one paralyzes him and he can't breathe. And now they give him yeah. enough. What's happening? So it's – it, 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 the movie kind of takes itself too seriously to have such a silly ending. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to take it that seriously. And I'm kind of okay with the yeah, silly ending. I'm kind of uh, – yeah, I mean it's I, – I can't help but think – I couldn't help but think of Dead Man Walking as I was watching this, obviously, a little bit. Um which is a film, again, I have not rewatched since I saw it in the theater back in 95. 95. 95. Um, I remember being in the theater in 95 and just being just destroyed yeah. by that. It's a, it, was a, it was a very harrowing experience. I remember sitting, that, sitting in the theater and watching that film. Um, this, this is, you know, I, so. I think we all, less so. But I think we also have to recognize that like, Clint is still sort of a popcorn filmmaker in a way. Like he still knows the tropes that he's playing in and he still knows how to like, you know, give you, give you what he thinks you want a little bit from time to time. And this, and the end of this film just feels like a little bit of a miscalculation of of veering a little bit too far down, you know, the, the populace quote unquote road of, of thinking that this is what people want at the end. Um, It's, I also want to just highlight one other scene that I thought was really powerful. It's, It's a little earlier in the film. Uh, it's it's between Everett and Beecham's wife, played by uh, Lisa Gay Hamilton, who's quite good in this film, even though she doesn't have a ton to do. And when she says to him, where were you all this time? And he says, it wasn't my story. It was a mistake. And Clint is really when Clint turns it on and he turns it on from time to time in this film, you you do get hit with like the guy's a really fucking good actor. He yeah. just. He just doesn't try that often. It's just, you know, even within a film, you're like, uh, you you get like, he'll give you like maybe 20% of a great performance, but like there's these moments and that's one of them. The look on his face, the the idea of like, of of being in over his head and and, and feeling terrible about the situation. Um, I don't know. It it, it really works. But there's no one like him. like. As uh, as singular as they come, yeah. yeah, it plays to his like to the conversations going on in the movie too about Steve Everett versus Clint Eastwood. Yes, because you've been watching the guy, you've been watching a guy coast in yeah. in both circumstances. And the, the the other thing that he brings in there is a little moment of irritation that he, that keeps coming up throughout the movie that people aren't doing what he wants them to do. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a privilege thing or a no time thing or a drunk thing. Or like a recovered drunk thing who suddenly has to real like now he's struggling to interpret people's facial expressions in a way he didn't have to before because he just didn't yeah. care. It it's sort of at odds with Steve Everett charming womanizer, right? Because if this guy can yeah. read people so well, he'd be better at this. But 
it's interesting because it just puts Eastwood on the back foot and it lets him be vulnerable in a way that he doesn't seem entirely comfortable with. Like, it's not romantic. Yeah. It's just confused, which plays to the yeah. end, which actually works there too. There's there's something also, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the, the procedural components and just sort of like the actual piecing together of what actually happened in the crime. And, and, and I feel like all the stuff in the convenience store just, just doesn't work for me. Um, it, 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 very nineties. That is a very nineties, nineties thing to do to yeah. like piece out this recreation of this crime yeah. scene over the course and of the movie. A more ambitious visual palette than I think Eastwood was interested in doing. Yeah. Yeah. It you just, it's flashed yeah. to, you need to sort of find a way to show us what the flashbacks are. You need subjectivity. You need oh, yeah. uh, even the high angle when it looks down over the potato mm. chips and into the back. Yeah. It's just, it's so weird and forced. He's like, I can picture three yeah. teamsters on a ladder trying to get the shot right. And I'm not supposed to be thinking about that when it's happening. It just doesn't, it, to your point, it doesn't visually pop in any way. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't actually, you, you, there, there's a part of me that feels like I'm not, I'm not asking for, you know, for gauzy lenses or any sort of things to make it clear that it's a flashback, but some sort of an aesthetic that would give us some sense of what is real and what, you know, what have you. Um, and then especially when we see how the actual killing is played out at the end of the film, which is not really triggered by anything. Like we're just given that information at the end because we need to have it. Right. Um, plays out very strangely, the actual killing, stealing of the necklace, all that kind of stuff, all the stuff that Clint is putting together in his sort of like euphoria, this, this like epiphany moment, um, you know, is, is just sort of a little bit, a little not great. It doesn't. It just doesn't work that well. But well, and we um, denied the information about the necklace in the beginning, so it's weird that yeah. he knows about it. It's just one of those things that. Well, we see her playing with it. We see the right. grandmother playing with it, but that's the only. But we never see Amy. It's Amy, right? The, it's Amy, Amy correct. correct. Girl. We never see any evidence of how important it was to her. Conveyed to the police that it doesn't come up as a conversation. It's like it's not part of the trial. Why would he know about it? And it's just a hole that is never filled. And it's fine because by that point in the movie, we just need him to save the day. Yeah, but it's just one of those things where it's like you know a looped line would have fixed that. Just somewhere half an hour earlier in the film. Yeah, but eh, we're on our way. It is what it is. And then and then the the, the governor they they get to the governor they save the guy. Blah blah blah. The who knew that that, by the way. like I thought, he was the publisher of the mag- of the newspaper who has no. The it's the governor. Ear. No, oh, so the I governor. thought it was the governor. So no, so I think it's the governor's ear. He drives to the governor's house. He drives to the governor's mansion as as but one does. Had been in the film earlier as you a would guy. Think. So Correct. that's I, I yeah. I I thought it was the publisher of the paper who's a friend of Alan's, who's the James Woods character, who has the governor's ear. But maybe it's Alan who has the governor's ear. Again, it's just, I was paying pretty Ultimately, ultimately, <laughs> it doesn't totally matter. All I know is that we get a guard picking up the phone saying, but it's too late. Right, which is so great. Yeah, that's, that's right. like That's where you cut to black and yes. then have the Christmas. Isn't that, yeah. Right? Who knew, by the way, true, true Crime was a Christmas movie, guys? Every but it is. Yeah. Christmas movie. I just um, watched the Godfather movies. Well, I, I, did find yeah, the end, I did find the end to be kind of lovely and weirdly affecting. And uh, the Lucy Liu part was okay. Well, yeah, not the Lucy, Lucy Liu part? part? No, the Isaiah Washington part. But, yes. and you know, the Lucy Liu part, it's another like, I know this doesn't feel like a populist thing, but I do feel like there is some weird catharsis for, for people who are just like, Clint, stop. Clint, stop hitting on these girls. Stop. And Lucy was like, eh, 
you know, I have a boyfriend. And he, it really, it does feel right that Clint can't get this girl right now. You know, but, but also it's like I have a boyfriend, but is he out of town for yeah. the holidays? It's like Clint, for the love of God, yeah, like, he's, he's a lech. Like, he's a lech. No, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not left with this like Clint's going to keep trying. I am left with this like. The movie is telling Clint it's time to move on. <laughs> what I'm saying, like Steve Everett hasn't learned a thing. That's Correct. the great thing about the ending. Yeah. That's why that yeah. comment needs to be there. We know very quickly he's still not back. Like he didn't get back with his wife. Mm-hmm. He spent all the money he from the everything. Book. Whatever happened, he's he's managed to take the greatest accomplishment of his entire life and yep. fuck it up off screen somehow and all that really matters in the end is that he gets that little nod from Beecham and that's the like that shouldn't be the message of this movie that isn't the message of a pulp story about the reporter who saves the day but that's the way the book ends so here it is and I I think that's great I I really also this is amazing in my brain I had added a limp I had added like (laughs) some kind of post-execution damage Uh to Beecham. 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 He has that one moment where he sort of twists his body when he goes back to mm-hmm. hug his daughter. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, he's limping. So he sustained some damage. So there's still some kind of like no. he's carrying some part of this. But no, I just made that up because I was bored <laughs> in the movie theater. Um, but, but there is something really moving about that moment. And it's just, I, I think, again, if we hadn't watched the whole ridiculous drama of racing to pull the, the, the line out of his arm, he had another line in the other arm. Like, we yeah. need to see that too. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the save you line. They keep that in there. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Pumpy full of adrenaline. Pumpy full of good uh, stuff. Yeah, but it but it is like it's almost a great ending. It it comes close. It, and, it comes close to, to sticking it. I I mean I yeah. honestly I think that if if they had dialed back the ending from eleven to like an eight, hmm. I think that it would have gone up several points for me in terms of I, of. Well, I don't know how to. I don't. I don't know how to defend this movie, but uh, I kind of. I, I kind of like the ending too. It obviously it's not great, but it's right if that makes sense. Like yeah, it's it in the in the absence of, and this is another thing, in the absence of great, good is good. You know, it, mm-hmm. and like I, I have no problem with people just shooting. You know, just shooting the two pointer, <laughs> getting that basket. Going back and trying again the next day, and that's what that felt like to me. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly after something like Absolute Power, where it's just you've both seen it, right? It swings so wide, and it just missed like that. That big reveal that Hackman is the president should be the most shocking, jaw dropping thing. And you're just, I saw that with an audience that was just like, someone actually said in the background, "Is he important?" It just doesn't land. Oh, and after that, true. and then the whole thing with like Clint Eastwood, Master of Disguise, and showing up at Laura Linney's graduation, yeah. and like, and all that stuff. And then you see this where it's like, no, he's old and feeble, and he's flailing, and he's still trying to do the right thing. It's more satisfying. Like, it's just, yeah. it's a more age appropriate performance from Eastwood, but it's also just a better, the, the bones are stronger. It's a better story. I, I, I agree. You can plug into whether it works or not from moment to moment. There's enough going on in true crime that I wasn't ever. As yeah. restless as I was in Garden of Good and Evil or Absolute Power or got like blood work, which is absolutely I've never seen blood work. So unwatchably I, bad. Blood I mean, work is, is the other one from this era that I just try, I think I'd heard of it. You <laughs> true crime. What a shitty title. I mean, come on. True yeah. crime? 
brutal, brutal. Can't even Google that shit. <laughs> uh, do you want to? Do you want to? Uh, you want to rank this, Kenny? Kenny, you want to go first? Yeah, I I uh, never saw this before. Never heard of it before. Um, was thrilled that we had a Clint movie, so we could talk yep. about Clint. Yeah. And I think uh, I think we did a good job with that. Um, my ranking was um, there's so much to, to dislike, but I'm giving it a 59. I just kind of <laughs> like it, and I think I conveyed that over the course of this podcast. There's so much to dislike, but I'm giving it a 59. After the podcast, I'm going up. I liked it way more than a 59. I'm I'm actually going to go up to it. I'm going to go up to a 69. I I, I think I oh like this. I like this movie a lot better than than most of the movies we've done. Throughout the year, it's by no means a great movie, uh, but it is a good movie, and I want to uh, the, the great to reflect that. <laughs> I um, so I had not seen this in '99 either. I did I did have a vague recollection of its existence, but I mean that that's that's being kind. I, I really don't remember it. Um, I it's so funny, Kenny. I was at a 59 as well coming into this podcast. I was I was like. I can't, I mean, it's not bad, but like, you know, how, how much did I like it? Um, this conversation has has made me like it a little bit more. I'm now at a 60. Uh, oh. I've, I've, crossed, I've crossed into the 60s. I think that it's, it's got a gentleman enough, 60. A gentleman 60. It's got, it's, here's the truth. It's worth watching for that fucking scene between James Woods and Den Sleary and Clint Eastwood. Because you're never going to see those three guys in a room again, I don't think. Um, and it, it's... Uh, it's got it's it's yeah it's got some good stuff it's got some good scenes him the scene with him and his wife as i mentioned there's some there's good stuff here um and and to, to kenny's point i i, I mentioned this uh norm when you stepped away for a second that when kenny texted me we were texting last night i had watched about 45 minutes of the film and i was like yeah it's fine and kenny's like it's weird <laughs> and then i was like i mean that's even that weird it's like i'm 45 minutes into it seems, and by the end of it i'm like yeah this movie's legitimately weird like it's it's weird in in interesting ways in good ways and in compelling ways that I I gotta I, I gotta you know recommend it. I'm, I'm at a sixty, but yeah. yeah. What about you, Norm? You uh, saw this in '99. I saw this in '99, and based on the memory, which and I didn't revisit it until this week, so sure. I would have gone with like a forty in my memory because I remember sure. being again a theatrical experience of this movie. You're restless and disappointed <laughs> a lot, hundred uh, percent. Although the audience was was into it a little bit more than they were for Absolute Power, I just remember the energy being like more with it during the last scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, then watching it again, I would probably have gone a little higher, so forty five, and I think I'm probably hovering around a fifty five <laughs> now because oh, the there you go. I like the things that I appreciate about Eastwood's career, retrospectively, and the stuff that's still ahead of him. Mm-hmm. work in the context of this movie like it's that that theory i have about him making movies to prove that he should still be making movies yeah i think there's not a lot he's done that dissuades me from from believing that's right it's stuff like j edgar and jersey boys where he's just like egregiously off base those oh, yeah. are the exceptions those are movies he shouldn't have made because he simply doesn't know how to make those movies yeah. but play, when he plays to his strengths when he focuses on the things that interest him um, and true crime is a movie like he clearly wanted to make the kind of movies he grew up watching. Like it's a yeah. 40s picture, a ticking so, clock, a man wrongly accused. And the details are kind hmm. of not that important. He's really chasing the energy in his own sleep. Totally yeah. J Edgar. I mean, we didn't talk about them a lot, but J Edgar, J Edgar and Jersey boys are two of the weirdest movies in anybody's filmography. Could you imagine Woody Allen doing something similar? These are, 
right? Well, like, he has the ambition to attempt these gigantic projects. Yeah. Someone got in his ear at some point. After it must have been after Flags of Our Fathers and Letters to Iwo Jima, which is just such, such a towering achievement, even if they're not my favorite movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And someone got in his ear and, and said, "You're Spielberg. You can do whatever he does." And these are those are two Spielberg movies. I mean, those are those, those are those are totally. movies that Spielberg should have done. I mean, Jagger is Lincoln and and Jersey Boys is West Side Story, and they're movies that Spielberg should have done or could have done, and they're they're real bad attempts at that. And I'm sure he hated every moment of being on set for both of those movies. Yeah, Jersey I imagine. Boys, though, like Jersey Boys is so fascinating because it's the work of someone who has made a musical. Like he's in Paint Your Wagon, right, which we yeah. try not to acknowledge, right. but right. he knows how these things are made. And then he still makes just the most bizarre choices for Jersey Boys. Like, it's yep. just, let's take this film and score it with a Clint Eastwood tinkling piano in the background, the noodling thing he does. Like, this is, a, this, True Crime has a Lenny Niehaus score. It's still got a musical. Yep. Uh, it, goes, it goes wild towards the end, but at least it has the fundamentals. Like, and, and Eastwood wrote, I think it's also important that we point out that he co-wrote the song at the end, the Diana Krall number, over the oh, end credits, which is sure. terrible. <laughs> uh, but like it's just the most direct it's it is it is a restatement of the story why should i care i don't know mm-hmm. this guy the world wants me to act but that's not what the movie is about no. that's what the guy who didn't really pay that much attention to the script thinks it's about yep. and that's the guy who made the movie it's just this incredible contradiction of somebody who is in this case just like Steve Everett, he shouldn't be doing this, but he pulls it off. <laughs> and I have a grudging respect for him, as opposed to something like Jersey Boys yeah. or Jager, where he's just like, he should have been content to produce it and step aside. I mean, let's not forget, he was going to direct The Star is Born for five years. Yeah. This is a man who has no idea what he should and shouldn't be doing at yeah, this point yeah. in his career, but he's still trying, which I guess is something. Jersey, yeah. Jersey Boys, while not necessarily does while it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a great film uh should have been a wildly successful movie oh yeah. uh it should have made millions upon millions upon hundreds of millions. my parents saw the play jersey boys at least eight times on broadway um it, it had it had that kind of titanic thing for boomers and the fact that it was botched so badly is such a it's it's such it's such a missed opportunity to make globs of money. Yeah, I mean, it could well, have the been, person it, that I know almost did it was Favreau, which would have been interesting. Oh, that would have been interesting. It would have been. Um, I mean, else. truly, anybody else would have done a better job. And this it's isn't not that just, hard. It's not I mean, that hard. It's, I, I I think like I you know I who did Greatest Showman. Oh fuck yeah! I know oh, you're. Yeah, yeah. I think that's my point, which is you. Yeah. Ju- if, if you just got a replacement level director in there, they would have made a replacement level movie, and that's what you needed out of Jersey Boys. Um, I think but, almost any like a Rob Marshall might have done too much with it. But yeah, well, I think again, it speaks to Eastwood's lack of interest in prep. Like, if you yeah. let the second unit shoot yeah. the musical numbers, this is what happens. If yeah. you Really don't care. Like that just that again, the only basically the only thing I remember about Jersey Boys now is the freeze frame at the end that isn't a freeze frame Whoa. where the camera just wanders around through all these people expecting us to be applauding. Yeah. Because that's what happened on stage. And all you're right. left with is they look scared. Like they look worried. <laughs> no one yeah. knows what to do. That's why you end freeze frames with actual freeze. It was uh it's it's police squad. 
right? It's the ending of every yeah. episode of Police Squad at the fake freeze yeah. frame. Yeah. But at least those guys threw in a monkey. There was something to look at. <laughs> uh, so next week, Kenny, we are uh, doing a film that you are very excited to talk about. So I'm going to let you talk about it. Kenny. Uh, uh, would, uh, tell me what it is and I'll talk. Oh, we're doing Beyond the Mat. Oh, wow. We're doing Beyond the Mat. Uh, Norm, what do you know about Beyond the Mat? I, I've seen it. I liked it a lot. I'm, do you have, who do you have for it? We have Dave Schilling, who uh, – do you know Dave Schilling? Uh, name rings a bell, but I couldn't tell you where. He's a culture writer uh, who also happened to have written for WWE. Oh, okay. um, he is a huge wrestling personality. He's a guest on screen, screen drafts all the time, and he's someone that I've wanted to talk about wrestling – Talk to talk with about wrestling for a very long time. He's one of the few people who has an inside perspective on what's gone on in that world. For those of you who don't know, Beyond the Mat is a documentary about WWE, the height of its popularity. Um, it, I, I would not advise you to watch this movie and expect to come out of it a wrestling fan. It really shows just how horrible this industry is to the people who are who are doing the jobs. Um, I, I don't know. It's gonna be really interesting for for me to hear Phil's take on this. I I'm excited. Our, I know nothing know. about wrestling. Me? As I love I love wrestling, but I love WWE. But it's hard to square it with sure. the the industry. The thing about wrestling and WWE is, until right now, with the advent of AEW on TNT, no one's ever tried the other approach which is to treat people like employees, to treat people with respect, to give people health care, to do, to do it the right way. Um, the thing I love about WWE is there's no other art – well, wrestling. There's no other art form like it. There's no other on-the-fly, serialized, live audience. Um, you make a mistake. You go with it. Someone gets injured. That's now part of the story. People, mm -hmm. You're booing the guy who's supposed to get cheered. That's now part of the story. This is all the, the, the fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants-ness of the storytelling is wildly exciting to me. But part of that is also that these performers are not treated with the respect that they should be treated with. So that, that, you know, that those two things fighting each other has kind of been a weird war with inside of me for years, because it's the only place the storytelling exists, but it's such I a, am, I am so excited for, to talk about this film because truly I know that, that Kenny has been looking forward to this film I mean, I would argue perhaps since the beginning of this podcast. I couldn't believe it was a 99 film. What I mean, <laughs> what a thrill. How fortuitous. So, well, you won't believe it. You just won't believe it. I won't. Yeah. I, I, as, 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 you know, Kenny and I uh, yesterday did an interview for, for another podcast called Interview with a Podcast where we talked about our, uh, talked about this podcast. Um, uh, you should go on this podcast too. Now, I was not aware of its existence. That yeah. sounds really um, cool. And and Kenny and I talked a little bit about you know what we love about the podcast, obviously, and and one of the things I love about it, honestly, is that I get to learn about things that I don't know anything about, and this is something I know very little about. We've we talked a little bit about wrestling in the uh, um, play it to the bone episode. In there, it right? comes up periodically. Yeah, I, but yeah. I mean, I've heard you mention it over the course of the years. Yeah. I come yeah. out of it just with this amazing respect for Mick Foley, who is like just in, uh, an indestructible human being. Uh, <laughs> And and I don't mean that in like an action hero way. I just mean sure. in terms of spirit. It's yeah that that was really remarkable about that movie. I I because I have absolutely no connection to rest. Have you done uh the one with David Arquette? Ready to 
Ready to Rumble? No. Uh, that, that wasn't 99. That was, was 99. Did right you hear the disappointment? Did you hear the, just the, the palpable disappointment? No, no, no. Ready, ready, ready to Rumble is very bad. Ready to Rumble. Like we did it uh, the year after, right? We yeah. did. And I think around the year after. But I think we, it's did, um, we did do Detroit Rock City. And Ready oh, to yeah. Rumble is the, ver- is the wrestling version of that. It's just a two-hour ad for something that uh, the whole thing makes me very uncomfortable because it presents the best possible version of this world. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I think the three main kind of the the three main characters of this movie are uh, Mick Foley and Jake, the snake Roberts. And I I think like the rock were really, or Vince McMahon, there's kind of four people they focus on and Mick Foley, you know, is the best argument for there. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Um, and if you treat this art with respect, with this performance art with respect, you'll see that there's a reason that these men and women give their bodies over to it, aside from the paycheck, because it's nowhere near the level of fame that they could get, even as Hollywood stump people sometimes. So there's something just visceral about what they do out there that I, I, I don't know. I'm going to talk about it. For <coughs> no, and, I'm. And genuinely, I, it's, genuinely, it's a very, weird very excited. I'm very excited it's, to it's, watch it. Being a wrestling um, fan yeah. is like watching a James Woods movie all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's that feeling all the time. No, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to. I'm excited to watch it. Bad. It's crazy. I'm excited to talk with Dave about it. Um, and, but but more than anything, Norm, thank you so much for coming on and talking uh, true crime and Clint Eastwood with us. We we really appreciate it. Oh, um, my pleasure. I can't believe I've, this is the first time I've had a chance to really unload any of that Eastwood stuff. I like no one has brought <laughs> a film of his to my podcast in 320. Episodes. Really? Yeah. If you can imagine, that's that. really Didn't surprising. Me. Well, that, that's that, very that, surprising. That is not surprising. That is not surprising to me because Clint Eastwood does not engender like this obsessive reaction. That's like true. I could see someone bring in Unforgiven, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I could not. Think. I couldn't imagine someone would bring American Sniper Sniper to your podcast. But, I could see someone bringing Mystic River. There are a lot of Mystic River fans out there. Yeah, they, they, they almost did a Million Dollar Baby episode about a year ago, but they changed their mind. Yeah, I, they, I, I could see maybe the earlier ones. I could see Play yeah. Misty for me. I could see Outlaw Josie Wales, like like that stuff. And I'm sure, I'm sure someone's brought a Sergio, Sergio Leone to your podcast now. Not yet. No. Come yeah. on. Seriously, it's I and wow. I. I'm never sure if it's because people think that they're intimidated by the subject matter, like it's too important a to film, or it's just not the favorite thing that you grab for. Um, we that almost cool? did once upon a time in in uh, the West. But well, that that's cool. Yeah. And again, it didn't happen like, to change in mind. Virgil Leone's cool. Like when I when 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 we're going through our list, like there is definitely the, the calculus running through my head of, well, how do I want people to perceive me and the choice I make when I get on your podcast is a sure. big fucking deal. There's gonna be a whole yeah. group of people who I've never met, and I want them to think I'm someone who loves uh White Man Can't Jump, not someone who loves Invictus. So you know, I, I could see it's, why it, we can clear that up right at the start if you want to. We can just put that in. There. <laughs> Damn cool! It's just be like, guys, he's cool, okay? <laughs> but I, but I, I also just want to say uh, thank you again, Norm, for letting me come on your podcast to talk about oh, Batman Returns. That was a blast and so you could a that. dream come true uh, to be able to just, you know, just talk constantly about about Michelle Pfeiffer and Catwoman, and it was great. And um, I. I did- Speaking of school a little bit, but there is a Clint movie in 89. Just saying. Is there? 
Oh my Pink God, Cadillac. there is. Pink Cadillac. Yeah. Pink so Cadillac. Really, yeah. I've never you seen Pink Talk Cadillac. about that. Like the, 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 the 80s years, the yeah. stuff like City Heat yep. and Pink and the Cadillac. Rookie. And the like Blackheart, something or other. White Hunter Blackheart. White Hunter Blackheart is actually it's not a bad movie if it's not Clint Eastwood playing John Huston. If you cast John, if he had cast John Lithgow in that and made exactly the same film, we'd still uh, be talking about it. It's just a total mismatch of who he is and who he's supposed to be. I would. I. I, I mean, Pink Cadillac doesn't exist, but I do <laughs> like the idea of Clint before Un- Unforgiven. You know. Um, there's something there's something kind of rich to to where he was uh, mentally and as an artist at that point. Yeah, Pink well, Cadillac also has a moment where a biker offers him a chance to snort amphetamines off a Bowie knife, and he says, "No, thank you. I'm high on life." And oh, that's so cool. That should haunt him. Uh, I would say <laughs> he, he 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 honestly says what he says is uh, what, what what's a joke from Freaks and Geeks. Said. Freaks and geeks. Um, the, the log line for Pink Cadillac sounds right up my alley. So I think I actually. What is the, what is the log line? Bernadette Peter steals her husband's pink Cadillac. She's chased by white supremacists like across the country. Uh, yeah. some, I think you're going to love Pink Cadillac. I think, I think is what uh, we've just learned. Well, I hope you do it. And if we do it, Norm, I'd love to have you on for it. But, I hope you make it through it. Uh, no, it's not that. <laughs> I'll be there. No, I'll be there for you. I, I will help. I will be the therapist <laughs> on the other side of the line for you guys. Oh, God. Well, we, we, we appreciate it, uh, and, and thank you so much for, for coming on for this. We really, really do appreciate it, Norm. Oh, anytime. Yeah. Um, you know, long-time listener, second-time caller. This is great. <laughs> well, we can't wait to have you back for something else in the future as well. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.